Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shauna Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. I was reading a deposition that was given by Steve Cohen in a civil lawsuit. There's a segment where the lawyer asks Cohen if he knows what the insider trader laws are. And he says, no, I don't. How is it possible that a man who's worth $10 billion and trades thousands of stocks a month can say under oath that he doesn't understand or know what the insider trading rules are? And at that moment, I said, I got to get a hold of this video. My guest today is Nick Verbitsky, Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning producer at PBS Frontline. Nick Verbitsky, welcome to the Media Tribe. Thanks for having me, Shauna. Well, you're most welcome, Nick. It's lovely to chat to you. It's been a couple of months, I reckon, since we crossed paths and, and we're working. We're lucky enough to be working together. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, that, that journey took us from the back of a New York City taxi cab uh, to two years later having a, a film uh, premiere this past June, which was, uh, you know, I, I felt like I had a baby in June when that film finally premiered. <laughs> well, I feel like it was it was both of our babies at the end of that two years stint uh, trying to get that partnership and, and, and brilliant film Opioid Inc. off the ground. But before we kind of delve into all of that, Nick, and, you know, how extraordinary you are at getting access and, and making people uh, commission pieces, as, as, as I sampled in the back of that New York taxi, do you want to tell our audience, how you broke into journalism and filmmaking? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, in the late 90s, I had um, finished my MBA at New York University. I had a master's in finance and another in marketing. And the only thing I was sure of was that uh, I didn't want to go to Wall Street. Uh, you know, getting a master's in finance, um, you know, I was selling radio time at radio stations in New York back then. And all of my classmates worked at banks and were on Wall Street and, and they were all just miserable. So I, I just I knew that wasn't for me. And, uh, you know, I just had my first child. And, you know, I thought if I'd always been a documentary freak, um, you know, the Learning Channel and the History Channel when they launched, I, I watched it all the time and, you know, jumped off and started a production company uh, back in 1998. And had a pretty good business going uh, until about 2008. Things were going pretty well. And then the great financial crisis just destroyed us. You know, we went from over a million dollars in billings to, you know, almost nothing in the space of a few months. You know, at, at that point, started really thinking about what I wanted to do. And, and I had always wanted to work for Frontline. Uh, Frontline was always, it was something I grew up watching. And then I saw Money, Power, Wall Street, Frontline series on the great financial crisis. That's when I said, that's what I want to do. That's it. That's for me. And so I went out and I started researching and producing my own documentary film about the collapse of Bear Stearns, uh, which was kind of the, the canary in the coal mine for the great financial crisis. It was the first domino to fall. And I had never been in journalism before that. You know, I'm, I'm a critical thinker, though. And, uh, you know, so that, that certainly helped a lot. But producing my own film and, and, and bringing it to fruition, you know, it never did get aired anyway or anything, but it, 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 it taught me a lot. And it confirmed for me that, you know, kind of 
muddling along and doing corporate film work and that sort of thing. That that just that wasn't something for that I wanted to talk to my grandkids about. You know, I wanted to I wanted to do films. I wanted I wanted to make films. I wanted to do what Martin Smith did at, with Money Power Wall Street. Well, that's fantastic. And for anybody listening in who isn't familiar with PBS Frontline, um, it's the equivalent of BBC Panorama in the UK. PBS is the public broadcaster here in the US. Um, We also did an interview with the executive producer from Frontline. So you guys should listen into that as well. Um, But that's extraordinary, Nick, that you've, you know, you really, when you say you didn't want to go into Wall Street, I mean, and make the mega bucks there, and you've chosen a solitary path of, of documentary making, which we both know doesn't make you tons of money especially when it's investigative journalism so so that so that was huge um but you do bring this extraordinary financial mind to journalism i have seen that firsthand and you know how did you take that to frontline how did you convince them to kind of give an ingenue in documentary making um your your first credit as a director in 2013 yeah the the story of getting into frontline was really serendipitous um you know, I had, I had, as I mentioned, I had produced my own film, Confidence Game, about uh, Bear Stearns, that's collapse of Bear Stearns. And, you know, I was feeling frisky one day and I, I thought, you know, I'm going to send an email to the executive producer of Frontline and introduce myself to her. So I wrote an email. Uh, it was actually a LinkedIn message. And I said, look, I know you get probably a thousand of these a week, but I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm going to produce for you one day. And I just wanted to say hello and introduce myself. And of course, you know, I didn't hear anything back and, and, and a couple of months went by. And the next thing I know, I got a phone call from a guy named Dan Sugarman, who was uh, the reporter for Martin Smith at Frontline. And he calls me and he says, you know, we heard that you produced this film called Confidence Game. Could you send us a copy? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I could do that. Sent him a copy. The next thing I know, I'm sitting in Martin Smith's office talking about my film and the fact that he wants to interview me for a film that he produced called The Untouchables, a, a film uh, th- that I-, I was happy to be on camera in and, and actually use segments of my-, my Bear Stearns film in. But it was also a masterclass in interviewing by Martin Smith. Uh, his-, his interview of Lanny Brewer in that film was incredible. And it was just covering, you know, the fact that no bankers had been prosecuted for the financial crisis. Um, And then Martin literally walked me in the front door of Frontline. Wow. So Martin Smith is a veteran correspondent uh, on PBS Frontline. Again, just in case any of our audience isn't familiar with with the big name um, that is Martin Smith. So that's, I mean, it's serendipitous, but it also kind of shows your tenacity and also, um, you know, the perseverance that was involved. And and as you said, the kind of tongue-in-cheek LinkedIn message, which we've all done. It's like one of those things, you know, that that adage, you know, luck happens when opportunity meets preparation. I mean, that, that was a perfect example of that, you know, where, you know, I had been working on something and the timing just hit and and somebody heard about it from you know a lawyer on Sixth Avenue or something and then they called me it, it, it's really I still I think about that all the time I just it, it's an incredible thing and it just you know I think for all of us in this business you know we all get confronted with stories that you know you know should we drop this should I keep going that sort of thing and uh, you know I'll always remember those time that time warmly because you know I, I had no distributor I had nothing to do with this film but yet it turned into a great investment. 
Extraordinary. And what do you, just out of curiosity, what do your colleagues at Frontline now say to you? You know, you're you're the cowboy who emailed them saying, just by the way, I'm going to be working for you in a few years. What do they say to that now? Well, I, you know, I think it's, um, in fact, you know, uh, Rainey Aronson never even saw the message. So that the, the phone call I got from Dan Sugarman had nothing to do with my email. It was, that that's what makes it even crazier. So, uh, you know, but Rainey always, you know, mentions that, you know, she, she remembers that that message actually came in later. Uh, and they saw it. But, I, you know, I think Frontline is just a place where, you know, if you're smart and hardworking and, and you have the goods uh, and, and a good story, you know, you're you're in business. You know, uh, I, that, that's what I really respect about uh, Rainey and her her um, uh, her right hand there, Andrew Metz. I mean, you know, it's a, when you go to them, you're, you're it's always a thoughtful conversation, whether you get what you want or not. You know, I don't think maybe people see me as a cowboy, but, you know, it's definitely I'm not I'm not along the same lines as most of the people who who have come through there just because they're they're great journalists and had been, um, you know, before they they came to Frontline. Now, when researching this episode, I wanted to be sure I was fully up to speed with everything that was going on on Wall Street. This meant coming to terms with an emerging buzzword, SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicles. So in a nutshell, SPACs are a way for companies to list on a stock exchange. They've been around for decades, but their usage has massively grown recently. While I knew a little bit about SPACs, I didn't quite understand how they worked or what their major pitfalls were, nor did I have a whole lot of time to do a deep dive. Thankfully, the sponsor of today's episode, which is an audio journalism app called Noah, came in really, really handy by helping me know more about SPACs in a very short space of time. So Noah just doesn't produce spoken word articles from top tier publishers. Their editors also create series, which are collections of hand-picked audio articles on specific topics. So listening to their series on SPACs gave me multiple perspectives from three different journalists at the FT and Bloomberg. So I basically walked away having heard multiple points of view and feeling very smug and informed. Guys, if you'd like to try Noah, the first 100 people who click the link in the show notes on thismediatribe.com get one week free and 50% off. And my friends, by subscribing to Noah, you are also massively supporting this podcast. So it's a win-win all around. Right, back to Mr. Verbritsky. My next question, um, Nick, and it's the big, big question in the interview, and I'm hoping you will tell us about your extraordinary film, um, which was back in 2014, um, To Catch a Trader. I'm, I'm egging you along, of course, but it, it, can you tell us about a very proud moment in your career, Nick? You know, again, it's it's all it's really tied to Martin Smith. Uh, you know, after he had brought me in the door there, um, you know, we uh, we were talking about, you know, a, a, a collaboration, a project to work on together. And at that time, um, the story of Steve Cohen, the billionaire hedge fund manager, was just kind of jumping the, the rail into the the mainstream media from from the Wall Street Journal. You know, there was a big, I remember at that time, there was a big Vanity Fair piece on Steve Cohen that, you know, he was kind of like this white whale that the government was trying to get for insider trading. At that time, the, uh, you know, hedge fund managers were being convicted of insider trading and, and there was this big crackdown going on. And, um, you know, and Frontline loved the idea. Um, and you know, you know, I, all of a sudden now I'm working with Martin Smith on a film and I'm directing it. You know, I, I just, honestly, there were times when I worked on that film that I looked out the window and I just couldn't believe what was happening. So, 
you know, but I, I, I remember the day that I got the call that we were, we were getting a green light on the film. I was reading a deposition that was given by Steve Cohen in a civil lawsuit. Um, and, you know, as I'm reading through it, there's a segment where the lawyer asks Cohen if he knows what the insider trader laws are. And he says, no, I don't. And I, I remember exactly where I was. I was at Colgate University outside the Colgate Inn drinking a beer and reading this transcript and saying to myself, how is it possible that a man who's worth $10 billion and trades thousands of stocks a month can say under oath that he doesn't understand or know what the insider trading rules are? And at that moment, I said, I got to get a hold of this video. We, we were lucky enough to get a lot of, of cooperation from the FBI, uh, a lot of the agents that had worked on, on um, a lot of the cases there, which was super helpful. I wish we could have gotten some of the SEC people because they, they really deserved um, a lot of credit as well. But so, you know, during the course of the film, deposition video was under a court seal. And then out of the blue, I would say three months into production, I got a text message in the morning that said, you know, I understand you're looking for the video of Steve Cohen's deposition. And I said, yes, oh, yes, I am. You know, and this person said, well, send me what you want. I have it and, and I'll send it to you. A couple of weeks went by and I thought, oh, you know, I don't know if this person's going to come across with the goods. And then one morning I got a text saying that the video was outside of our offices in Manhattan, across the street in an envelope, wedged into the scaffolding on the building across the street from us. I'll never forget this. I, I literally dropped my phone five times running down the hall to get to the elevator <laughs> to go downstairs. I finally made it to the street. I go across and there's this little white envelope wedged into the, cro the, the, the crossbars there on, on the scaffolding. And it's got my name on it. Of course, my name was misspelled. It, it kind of looked like the Unabomber had written it. <laughs> it was a little scary. I, I was looking around the street like I had no idea what was gonna happen. And then I opened the envelope and there was a, a little USB drive, a thumb drive with a Bugs Bunny head on top of it. And I thought to myself, this is, this is some sort of gag. You know, I, th th this can't be real. And um, I went upstairs and, you know, we're all kind of huddling around the computer. And then so I don't remember who said it, but somebody was like, well, what if it's a virus? I was just about to say, it sounds like you've, you've just brought anthrax into the building. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And, and I thought for a minute, I was like, yeah, that's a good question. Then everybody was kind of like, no, you know, we got to see what's on this. And we plugged uh, the video in and there was Steve Cohen's uh, head on the screen. I could not believe what I was looking at. I, I, I was stunned. I really was. And although that first iteration didn't have everything I wanted, this person followed up again and had a, a courier drop something off at, at our doorstep with the rest of what I wanted. And, and, and that made it into the film. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the film would have been a, a good film, I think, without it. But it, it, that for me, that really made the film to be able to hear Steve Cohen's voice. You know, he buys all of the, the video and photo rights to his image whenever he can. So, you know, to hear him actually speak is a real coup, uh, much less seeing him uh, talk on video. So that that really uh, caused a stir. And, and I think everybody at Frontline was was excited about it. They actually posted some of the video online be way before the film even premiered. So Nick, let's just backtrack slightly. So the story of Steve Cohen and SAC Capital, it's all about insider trading, which is highly illegal. And as you said, Cohen himself was worth 
billions back in 2008. I think it was 8 billion back in 2008. Um, and, um, and he was aware that this trading was taking place. Can you tell us just a little bit more about like the kind of deals that were happening and trades that were taking place? Sure. You know, in, uh, in terms of what was happening at that time, uh, you know, the, the FBI was using a new technique in, on Wall Street. They, they were actually getting phone taps on hedge fund managers' phones. Um, you know, for years, in, insider trading, there, there was a, a very notable crackdown here in the United States back in the late 80s, which was the inspiration for the movie Wall Street, starring Michael Douglas. A guy named Ivan Boski uh, was involved with a guy named Michael Milken, who was also convicted later on of, of other offenses. Uh, but Ivan Boski had been getting insider information and profiting hugely off of it. And uh, the government cracked down on it. He went to jail. You know, but that was it. I mean, that was like 1987, 88. And for, since that time, th there really weren't many notable crackdowns on insider trading. Yes, th there would be once in a while some small time uh, trader might might get busted, but it wasn't anything material. So, you know, what really took shape on Wall Street was this idea that you weren't going to get caught. And, and even if you did get caught, a lot of traders would use these kind of, you know, excuses like, oh, well, the information I got from so-and-so was just part of a mosaic of other information. I have plenty of other information that, that confirmed for me why I should have traded in this stock. So they would continuously get off. And, and, and people, you know, I think in law enforcement were really tired of it and were able to, you know, kind of approach this as an organized crime type of thing. You know, I mean, we hear all the time about how the mafia is talking on a wiretap. You know, th that started to become a, a big tool that the FBI was using here. So in one, one part of the film, you know, we talk about a guy named Raj Rajaratnam, uh, who's a Sri Lankan, uh, of Sri, Sri Lankan uh, extraction. Uh, and it was a very successful hedge fund manager at a place called the Galleon Group. And, you know, there, <laughs> there's one instance uh, in the film where he literally gets a call from a director at Goldman Sachs who gives him insider information about Goldman, and then he immediately trades on it and profits hugely, and then brags about it on the phone. Unbelievable. So when you say profit hugely, you're talking about millions of dollars. This is significant, significant money. And insider trading, as we said, is illegal, um, just in case people are not familiar as to what that is. It's gaining information uh, when you shouldn't have had that information before something major happens in a company like Amazon. You decide to buy or sell stocks and you profit significantly off the back of that decision, having had that information illegally. It's called material non-public information. So if in, in one part of the film we're talking about Steve Cohen, one of his traders was able to get inside information about a drug trial uh, for an Alzheimer's drug. And, you know, this guy named Matt Martoma had befriended one of the doctors who was involved in the trial, and he found out that this drug was going to be a bust. And SAC Capital had, uh, it, it was a huge trade. Uh, we're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars here. And as soon as Cohen found out about it, all of a sudden they dumped out of it like a day before. It, it might not have been a day, it might have been even closer to that, closer to the actual announcement that the drug was not going to work. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, even here in the States, a lot of people believe that insider trading is a victimless crime, that you wanted to set, somebody said they were open to buying your shares at a certain price and you agreed to sell them your shares at that price. But, you know, I mean, really that that's just a bankrupt 
uh, argument. Uh, that, that is not true. I mean, if somebody sold you, there, there's a thing here in the States called the lemon law. If somebody sell, sells you a used car and they know that the radiator is broken and you know you take it off the lot, you, you get to bring that car back. It's fraudulent. Right, exactly. And th- this is the same kind of thing, but it, it still is an ongoing debate even to this day, which is you know, really bizarre to me, but but people still portray it that well, way. Well, I think is really, really important to note then is that um, SAC Capital, uh, they pl- they pled guilty to insider trading in 2013 and they had to pay the DOJ 1.8 billion in fines. And I just wondered, Nick, do you think having, you know, this extensive knowledge of um, finance and, and Wall Street at large, do traders and big companies and hedge funds like that just see this like a fines as a cost of doing business? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, th- and that's the big complaint is that, um, you know, th- that, that somehow, you know, the, the, the government has convinced people that these crimes are too complicated and a jury cannot, you know, fully understand them. And there was actually one, uh, one case that they point to, and, and it happened in the case of Bear Stearns, a couple of hedge fund managers were prosecuted and they had emails, all sorts of evidence against them and they got off. And so the, you know, the prosecutorial committee, uh, community kind of says, well, that sent a chill through their community to, to go after these crimes because they can't prove them in court. So yes, I mean, I, Wall Street and certainly other bit we know from our opioids uh, film, it's not just Wall Street, but a lot of big business in America sees crime as a cost of doing business. And it really only amounts to a, a, a fine and everybody goes on their merry way, which is frustrating for a lot of people here. Extraordinary. And so Steve Cohen himself, he was never charged. Um, he recently bought the Mets baseball team. Isn't that right, Nick? <laughs> That's a great irony because I'm a huge New York Mets fan, and now he owns my baseball team. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that at this point. It's difficult because, you know, when you see a guy like Cohen, you know, I, I sat in the conference room of a U.S. senator, and I looked through 70 what they call suspicious activity reports that get submitted to the, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States. And every one of them was a winner for Steve Cohen. Long, you know, buying stocks for the uh, the long term, shorting stocks, betting that the price will go down, you know, in front of earnings announcements, drug trial announcements, 70 and 0. You know, nobody's that good. You know, a lot of people don't don't point this out. But, you know, Steve Cohen was legendary on Wall Street because when he started in the mid mid to late 90s, he was achieving these incredible returns for investors, 50 percent a year, 30 percent a year. And that was after the huge fees he was taking. But after this crackdown uh, on Wall Street and insider trading, he hasn't even come close to those returns. And nobody points that out these days. Everybody seems to forget. It's, It's more than a little curious that those incredible returns stopped right after the, DO, the DOJ cracked down on all And so that film obviously was nominated for an Emmy. And I think that's actually how we struck up our friendship, Nick. Um, <laughs> I was in New York in 2014, um, living in a wee studio in Bushwick in Brooklyn. And I remember you got in touch on Twitter and we decided we'd go for a coffee and we realized we had this kind of mutual uh, love for finance and um, a kind of a nerdiness that we love Wall Street and we love 
all the kind of intricate craziness that happens in the background. And we vowed then that we, we would work together. And of course, we were very lucky to have that opportunity this year. I, I remember I remember the, uh, the night of the Emmys that I specifically went up to you and introduced myself at the Empire Hotel uh, <laughs> at the after party because I wanted to meet the woman who was in Africa in a moon suit producing a film about Ebola. Like that is just something that is so out of my league. It's not even funny. So that's, that's how our friendship began. And I remember it very well. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a good night, um, a, a, a long night, but um, anyway, we went on to make a, a great film with, with the frontline and, and the financial times and uh, with our colleagues, Tom Jennings and, and Hannah Kuschler, um, which you know, I, it was wonderful to see you in action. And I mean this in the most sincere and polite way, but you getting access, Nick Verbitsky, is like a dog with a bone, basically. I thought I was good until I met you. And you do not stop until you get the, the access that we need to make great films. So fair play to you. I, uh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I credit a lot of that to my years in New York City selling radio time, to be honest with you. Um, you know, sales, a sales job is a great uh, uh, training ground for people, like, for producers of documentary films. I really believe that. I mean, it taught me how to speak to people. It taught me, you know, empathy. It taught me how to read a room. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly still draw upon those lessons today. And I, I really think it has a lot to do with, you know, I, I was, when I was selling radio, I was dealing with people who bought a hundred million dollars worth of radio a year. And then I was getting, I will never forget this. I collected $1,500 in cash from a club owner who had a gun on the table when he was counting it out to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from, from your, your brilliant film in 2014, you, I mean, Frontline saw that you were a talent and, and that you were worth keeping on the books essentially and you've gone on to produce many many films for them one which was oscar nominated abacus which was an extraordinary film in 2017 i think and policing the police documenting hey you've done it all for 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 frontline i'm curious nick if there is a moment which i know there is in your career that's rather bonkers and crazy that we don't know about i certainly don't know about um, but maybe you'd like to delve into and give us some juicy details yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, in Frontline, you know, that that story with the with the thumb drive is probably the craziest thing, uh, you know, that happened to me. I mean, to be honest with you, before I started with Frontline, I actually did I did produce some TV documentary work, and I was uh, one film I was doing about polygamy. I was in the desert in southern Arizona, and we were being followed around by the local militia who was trying to intimidate us. And and at one point, you know, we talked to a state senator who uh, in that same community uh, was blocked in by the residents who wouldn't let him leave. So we actually had to hire some security to be with us. We were, you know, a little afraid of, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, places to, uh, <laughs> to get rid of people in the desert. So, you know, we, uh, we, we definitely didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, cheap out and not, <laughs> not protect ourselves. It was, it was, uh, some of it was a little bit hairy, you know, I mean, that the people that we were dealing with, they would let their wives drive cars, but they wouldn't have license plates on them because if they ran, police would pull them over because they had no license plates and then they would just return them to the community. So it was kind of a cult situation down there. You know, th those kinds of things that, that was 
what really, you know, to see what happened to the women in, in, in that community, I, I couldn't go as far as I wanted to invest in from an investigative standpoint. And that was another thing that really drove me more to frontline and wanting to do the things that I'm doing now is, you know, watching these these men just subjugate women the way that they were and treating them like cattle. That that really made me angry. I, I look back on that a lot in terms of my formative years of, of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my career. And I, re- I remember one time watching one of these guys walk up on the steps of a courtroom and I asked him a question and he said something very dismissive to me. And at that moment, the rage in me was, uh, you know, I, I was really upset. And, and that that's part of the, the, the time where I said to myself, you know, I want to do something that really makes a difference, that that really goes after people. Well, that's brilliant, Nick, and, and a great note to end, I think. So thank you so much for your insights. It's brilliant to hear about your career trajectory and our audience are going to love that. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. Always good to talk to you, Shona. Thank you. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.